You know what doctors aren't allowed to do with their lady patients? Yeah. Well, he did. I'm a professor. A little absent-minded. I, I like him. Professor Plum is... The type of academic who gave the universities of this country a bad name. Very interesting. Lustful. Oh, how disgusting. I don't know anything about that. Professor Plum is... Pathetic. It's you and me, honey bunch. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about movies that bombed in the theaters or maybe the critics didn't like. Brad, uh, this is a kind of a It wasn't cool... me. It wasn't me, Troy. Are you sure? It, I'm pretty sure. I saw you in the library. I saw you with a candlestick and bad things happened. If it, if it was me, I would not have done it with a candlestick. Oh, okay. Uh, well, what, hey, what movie are we talking about today? We were talking about 1984. Five's comedy mystery film Clue, based on the popular board game. Yes, I'm I'm super excited because uh, we have a guest, and we're going to talk about the movie going experience and specifically why this one was so unique. Um, but this this is one of this this is probably our favorite movie critic. Let's be honest. I mean, the the aisle seat <laughs> is my go to um, <laughs> website to re, you know to just read reviews, but. Brad, do you want to do the formal introductions? Yeah, you've already stolen like two of my talking points. So yes, we have Mr. <laughs> I'll see himself, Mike McGranahan, making his triumphant return to the podcast. Mike, how are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me back. I had a great time the last time I was on, and I'm excited to talk to you guys about Clue today. Yeah. I, hey, look, we had sadly a- digital under, underground does not make an appearance. <laughs> on Clue. I looked, oh. not there. But Jane Weedland does. Oh, that's yes. true. The Go Go's. Yeah, we get a little Go Go. I, I mean, when when we put this on the schedule, we had so much fun talking about nothing but trouble. You you were the obvious choice. Like we were going to beg, plead, like sell our house, mortgage the house, whatever we had to do to get you back on. Um, it's got to be a busy season for you. I mean, this is award seasons, right? It is. Um, I'm a member of the Critics Choice Association, and our awards were last month. So at this point, I'm just a spectator waiting to see who wins the Oscars. But all my screenings and my votings are finished for for now. Okay. I'll kick back up again at the end of this year. Are you going to do like a public pick and kind of tell everybody what your predictions are for the Oscars? Um, or are you keeping that sort of close to the chest? I'm still trying to figure it out. There's a couple of categories that I think are really, really tight, and I just don't quite know how they're going to go yet. Yeah, I, I got to say, I've got I've got a little bit of time, but I'm desperately trying to get out and see everything because uh, there are a lot of interesting picks this year. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of excited to watch it this year. I, I can't say that yeah. about last year, but this year I think it's going to be really good. It is a good year, and nine of the ten Best Picture nominees are very good films. <laughs> and, and then there's maestro <laughs> oh yes the, yeah i i thought cillian murphy was like hands down going to be winner of the best actor and then i saw the holdovers and i if yeah. paul giamatti wins i you know i would not be surprised same here i think he will win i oh, think okay. both of those men deserve it and it would be really hard to pick but the momentum seems to be in paul giamatti's favor right now so 
Yeah, it's it's going to be a tough pick. Well, I can I can tell you one movie that back in 1985 did not get nominated for an Oscar. It was <laughs> Clue. Yeah. Uh, and and obviously Brad's going to go through the details of it bombing, but this is a unique film because it's one in a long history of uh, theater gimmicks. So I, I'm using the term gimmicks as sort of a um, a marketing ploy. I think that studios use to try and get people into the seats and mm-hmm. do something outside of just paying your money, getting your popcorn and watching the film. Right. Um, and, you know, 3D at one point was a gimmick, but it seems to kind of have different life cycles. It comes back and forth. Uh, Cinemarama, Cinemascope, IMAX, those I guess you would consider gimmicks because they're supposed to enhance the the viewing experience. But I thought we would concentrate on something like Clue, because what made Clue unique, and we'll talk about this in the production and development, depending on where you saw Clue, you would have a different ending. There were three different endings. Right. Um, I, I'm going to start with you, Mike. There, there is a long history of theater gimmicks, and it, and it goes back to folks like William Castle. Uh-huh. Um, do you have a favorite one, or did you get a chance to like experience some of these? Uh, I had a chance to experience John Waters' film Polyester with the Odorama scratch and sniff card. Oh, At man. various points in the movie, a number would pop up on screen, and then you would scratch the corresponding dot on the card and sniff it, and it had something to do with what was happening on screen at the time. So do you remember what some of the smells were that were on the card? I think one was uh, fresh linen. Uh, one of them was, I, I don't, I'll just go PG here. Number two, oh. <laughs> which yeah, I mean, it's John Waters. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> at some point that was going to come into play. Uh, most of them are fairly nice. There's a couple that are just silly. And then that one is obviously the gross one. So at the end of last year, an Australian company, Umbrella Entertainment, had re-released Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on a special edition Blu-ray. And had done that same thing where they put a scratch and sniff card in there. And you could watch, and I, I can't remember the terminology they used it. I picked it up. I haven't experienced it yet. But it was the same kind of thing. that Something would show up on screen, and then you would take mm-hmm. the card out, scratch it, and you would get that um, smell. I guess that's been used a few times. I was I was trying to go back and, and look. Um, you just talked about polyester. That was 1981. Uh, Rugrats Go Wild used an Odorama scratch and sniff card. And um, I guess Spy Kids all the time in the world did an Aromascope scratch and sniff card. So this is kind of a yeah. popular theater gimmick. Yeah, and, and that really is the most gimmicky of gimmicks because it doesn't in any way enhance your appreciation of the movie, except I would argue in polyester because John Waters did it very knowingly. Right. You know, and, and, and he had a method behind his madness as he always does, but certainly it's not something that you would want for every movie. I don't want to go see Oppenheimer and scratch and sniff and smell the particles after the explosion. (laughs) Little, little (laughs) nuclear waste smell. Uh, (laughs) After sex smell too. Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, was, was there ever a film gimmick that you knew about that you wish you had seen or participated in? Yeah, I I participated in it late, but do you know the story of million dollar mystery? No, no, I don't think I do this. 
this is fascinating. This is my favorite movie gimmick of all time. This movie came out in the 80s, and it was from producer Dino De Laurentiis, who, of course, was one of the giants of film in the 70s and 80s. And he came up with this idea after seeing people standing in line to buy lottery tickets. He said, you know, if we make a movie where people can win a million dollars after seeing the movie, they'll line up around the block for my film. So he made this movie called Million Dollar Mystery, which he partnered with Glad Trash Bags people (laughs) and the plot of the movie is that this group of people it's kind of like it's a mad 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 world group of people are looking for four million dollars that has been stashed around the country they find three million of it and promptly lose it and then at the very end of the film a guy comes on screen and he says there is still a million dollars missing it's hidden somewhere in america when you came into the theater you got a card with some clues on you can also go buy glad trash bags and get another clue card and if you can figure out where it is, you will win a million dollars. So that sounded terrific, except that Million Dollar Mystery completely bombed at the box office. It made <laughs> about $975,000. So they had to give more money to the winner, <laughs> who turned out to be a 14-year-old girl from Bakersfield, California, than the film itself actually grossed in theaters. And it brought down Dino De Laurentiis' studio the financial hit from that. Wow. So I'm, I saw the movie on, on uh, VHS at the time. I wish that I had seen it in the theater and had gotten one of those cards because I would still own that today. But uh, that's kind of my favorite of the one that I wow. wish that I had, you know, been able to take part in. I, I remember that film. Cause I remember watching it on HBO. I, I guess I didn't understand the theatrical experience of that. That, that is crazy. Yeah. It's one of my favorite crazy movie stories. That's so cool. It was just a big bomb. You know, I mean, they, like I said, they gave away more money than the film earned. So it was just a total disaster. That, that's awesome. Um, Brad, do you have you experienced any sort of theater gimmicks uh, in your uh, in your experience? Going I mean, the there's movies? like the D box stuff with some of the Fast and Furious films. Right. Um, I wanted to mention something a little bit outside of the box, but more of a gimmick around the film. And that was Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Oh, okay. And so how it takes place over 12 years uh, of, a, of a boy's life, and they actually really filmed it over 12 years. And that I feel like that was like a huge part of the marketing was like, you know, this is how, you know, it took Richard Linklater 12 years to make this film. Um, and I, I just remember that being the selling point of Boyhood, not really the film itself. And I mean, I, I don't love Boyhood very much. I think it's like a cool experiment, but um I definitely went to see it because of that fact. Um, so I, I was just thinking about how films are sometimes marketed with their gimmick in mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that brings up the director's cut or, you know, how they squeeze oh, yeah. out a little bit more when they say, Hey, there's been an extra five minutes added into this. Uh, Marvel's done that a few times. Um, obviously I mean, the early two thousands was fraught with, you know, the unrated cut, the cut you couldn't <laughs> see in the theater. Yeah. Get ready for more, you know. Yeah. So your parents don't want you to see this for yeah, sorry. Is is there is there one that you wish you could experience out of that like long list in history I of theater gaming? I really wish I could have experienced some of the eighties three D films. Uh, you know, Jason, even Jaws three D. I, I just wish I could have seen some of the really bad stuff. Um, the first 3d film I think I saw that I can really, really remember was the, my bloody Valentine remake. Okay. So it was like late in life. Um, you know, cause 
then after that 3d kind of made a made a comeback and everything was in 3d for a little bit and then avatar came out and people were like well if we can't do it as good as that then why even why even bother so yeah i i just never got to experience any of the cool 80s 3d with like the you know the, the special glasses and stuff yeah I, my first 3d film was the resurgence of 3d in the 80s with and it was an italian spaghetti western coming at you and i i still have my glasses for that oh, yeah. uh, um do you remember your first 3d film mike yeah, it was also in the '80s. It was Space Hunter: Adventures in the Forbidden oh, Zone. Oh yes, with I the remember young Molly Ringwald. And you know, of course, when you talk about 3D now, we have the digital 3D that looks so good. But back then, it was the red and green or the red and blue glasses that made everything look gray and gave you a headache. I mean, the 3D back then really was not as impressive looking as today's by any stretch. So that kind of added, I think, in a lot of ways to the cheesy appeal with stuff like Jaws 3D or Friday the 13th 3D. The fact that it didn't look technically great was part of the fun of it. I'm telling you, coming at you was amazing. <laughs> the, a, the obligatory like 3D shots, like oh, this is obviously oh, the yeah. shot where they want the you know. Oh the, yeah, coming at you. You're coming towards with that stuff. Snakes, yeah. like cannonballs. Oh, loved all of it. Yeah, and they push it out as far as possible in that movie, so it really does feel like it's right in front of your nose. Yeah, the I, I was trying to go back and just look at sort of the history of it. Um, th there's one article that goes all the way back to 1927 and talks about polyvision trip tech. And I guess it's just at this point, they're showing basically three scenes playing out at the same time on a screen. I really don't think the gimmick per se kind of comes into play until you get to William Castle's era and mm -hmm. specifically 1958 with macabre where a thousand dollar life insurance policies were given to audience members against death by fright, which I think <laughs> is so cool. Um, and I actually just, uh, this last year at the Alamo draft house got to experience a William Castle film, um, complete with its gimmick. We happened to see 13 ghosts and they Ooh. came out and handed out the, um, illusion cellophane filters. So it was basically your blue and red glasses, but the way it works is if you believed in ghosts, you look through one color. And if you don't believe in ghosts, you look in the other one. So if you don't oh. believe in ghosts, you wouldn't see any ghosts on the screen. If you did believe in ghosts and look at the other one, then that's the only way you could see the ghosts on the screen. It was it was really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. The other one I remember going as a small child, uh, and and by small child probably like two or three. So in the in the seventies, I think going into the eighties, um, they had what was called sense around. Did you guys ever hear about this? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So this is what made subwoofers popular pretty much um, in, in theater-going experiences and even home theater. But Sensoround was basically these large subwoofers that would be put um, at the front of the theater. And then sometimes they would remove like rows of seats in the back just to put these big um, subwoofer boxes out there. And I remember my dad taking me to Roller Coaster just super young. And it was in sense around and I didn't make it through the film because it scared me so much. He had to, he had to take me out. Wow. Um, but I, I remember that vividly. Um, of course the movie we're talking about tonight with clue, um, it, here's some other things. And I know other films have talked about this or have tried it. Uh, but something like, um, what was it? Mark of the devil from 1970, was rated V for violence and sick bags were distributed to audience. But I remember going to tons of 
80s slasher films that had the the vomit bag or sit bag that had the label of the film on it. Yeah. Yeah, that took off for a while there. Yeah, a, a couple of other things. Like the the one I wish uh, somebody would do, but you probably can't in this environment. Um, it's a William Castle thing, but I've always wanted to see the Tingler with Percepto mm. seat vibrators. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, Psycho had the no late admissions policy. They wouldn't let anybody in the theater once it started. Uh, what's a couple of other ones? Um, I saw what you did in 1965 advertise an audience seatbelt shock section, uh, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, we talked about 13 ghosts, the hypnotic eye from 1960 had hypno magic and, and required audience participation. Um, horrors of the black museum had hypno vista. Um, what else? What was the one with the flying skeleton that, uh, went over the audience? That was another yeah, that was also Castle a William thing. Castle movie, wasn't it? I'm blanking on the name of that one, but I remember the stories of it. Yeah, was it was it House on Haunted Hill? Oh, that was Emergo, the Flying Skeleton. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a theater in New York that still does it today because they're set up for that. That's awesome. I love this basket case. Um, in 1982, free surgical mask to keep the blood off your face. <laughs> These are fantastic. Uh, well, and then there's like found footage, like found footage is its own sort of gimmick. Um, it, it is. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you guys think about this? I mean, is this what theaters, you, you read articles all the time about, you know, theaters are struggling a little bit right now. You just have the major blockbusters or maybe the independent films, sort of that mid tier film now resides in streaming services, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you think studios should be bringing gimmicks back to get audiences into the seats? I mean, what's your take on it? Ooh, I, well, you know, the thing about those other gimmicks, like the William Castle stuff, it sits around, you couldn't do that today. Audiences are too savvy. They're too skeptical. They would never buy into the idea of being given a sick bag or having to sign a, a an insurance waiver. So I think in some ways our society has lost the ability to really appreciate those gimmicks. But I, I do see some modern versions of it. This whole Screen X thing to me seems like a gimmick. Have you seen that? I've I've wanted to. There's one out um, in Columbia, Maryland, I think, because the the whole concept of that is it's a it's a traditional movie going experience, but you have a pretty much the same size screen on the right and left. Yeah. Um, and I I heard the movie I wanted to see it in was Top Gun Maverick. Never got out there to do it. But, but I heard uh, it can be either really cool or really annoying to try and watch a mm -hmm. film that way. Yeah, I can yeah. believe that. I, I would think you would have to be like exactly in the middle for that to work. Because if you're like on one. I think that's the problem. Side, yeah. If you're too mm -hmm. close to one side, it, it kind of ruins it. Yeah. D-Box. I mean, I don't I know, Brad, you've experienced it. The first mm -hmm. time I've ever done D-Box was at Batman versus Superman, a.k.a. Orphan Fight. <laughs> um, and I, I gotta say it was cool when Superman was flying because you felt like you were flo floating, but the se sequences in the Batmobile, I, I thought I was going to pee myself because of all the shaking. The, yeah. And I remember the D box ticket costing like close to $30. It like, was expensive. Even like five to 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, is IMAX a gimmick? Like I, I appreciate IMAX. I'm like, but sometimes gimmick makes it seem like a derogatory term. I, I hear, I don't think IMAX is derogatory, like the, the, the term gimmick, but it really is. Um, I mean, 
it is what it is. Like it, it's it, a it's a way of getting distinguishing self between something else. It's a that's a good question. I mean, do you if if something's showing an IMAX versus you know a, a regular showing, are you going to choose IMAX over over just a, a typical screening? I mean, I bought my Dune two tickets in IMAX. Like it, <laughs> that's what I you know how I want to see it. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Yeah, I mean, uh, IMAX to me, I, I like IMAX, but you know, there's really IMAX and then there's what they call LIMAX, yeah, which is that's true. Yeah. You know, an actual IMAX screen is several stories tall and it's a really amazing experience. And a lot of these multiplexes have IMAX where the screen's just a little bit bigger than it would normally be, goes up to the ceiling a little more, down to the floor a little more. So, in, in some sense, I do think IMAX is kind of a gimmick just for that reason. You know, if you, if you choose to make something in that format and you see it projected several stories high, that's a genuine experience. Um, but, you know, just the idea of seeing something on a bigger screen or a massive screen, I think is a, a gimmick in a good way. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this. Um, IMAX, uh, if it's, if it, if they're showing a film in one of the science museum IMAXs, which are the true IMAX, I'll totally mm -hmm. go that. Right. Yeah. Uh, I will gravitate more towards Dolby Atmos theaters because for me that that's that's where it's at i think the dolby atmos theaters have fantastic projection and the sound is is unmatched um but i also love 70 millimeter so afi mm. is showing dune 2 in 70 millimeter they're bringing Oppenheimer oppenheimer back in 70 millimeter um and and i think they're showing lawrence of arabia in 70 millimeter in uh, oh, wow. april so they actually have a 70 millimeter projector. And if you ever are in Silver Springs, Maryland and get a chance to to see something that they do in 70 millimeter, because I've seen Die Hard 70 millimeter. Oh. Uh, I saw it on its initial right. run and then they brought it back. Um, I think it was at the AFI. It was, it's fantastic because it, yeah. it was usually like that six track or eight track Dolby system that goes with the two. It's fantastic. It, it's almost like sense around, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. You know um, a gimmick I'm glad that we have moved away from because we have learned it's stupid. What's that? It's the high fr high frame rate stuff. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Dude, when we yeah. saw when we saw the Hobbit together, Troy, that's I, right. It took me two minutes to be like, "This is the dumbest thing," and we still had almost three hours left. I was like, "I hate every second of this." <laughs> I remember seeing that. I guess the other gimmick right now is the uh, popcorn buckets. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, I, I collect those. I have to admit. I, I do think they're pretty cool. I got to say, those are pretty neat. Yeah. The AMC stuff's cool. The uh, the Dune 2 one, the one that looks like this. the Oh, the sandworms? The sandworms, like, fleshlight-looking thing is weird. Oh, yeah, that I is crazy. I have one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to talk about a film that had a, I guess, it's only been done one time theatrically with multiple endings. And, and to keep this in perspective, today... When you go to the movie theater, everything is is digital, so it's on a hard drive. Unless you're unless you're going to something like the Mahoning Drive-in, maybe uh, AFI that that might use film prints. But in 1985, films are delivered in canisters, and you put the reels together. And what made this film unique was the last reel was different um, for every theater, and mm -hmm. you didn't know what you were going to go into. And and I guess it was supposed to be like, hey, well, let's let's see Clue at this theater, and then maybe a, a week later go to another theater and might get a different ending. But it didn't pan out that way. And, and I was going to say, Troy, by the re box office return, I'm going to say not many people did that. <laughs> yeah, you you want to talk about that real quick, Brad? How did how did this thing do on a theatrical? Sure. Run? 
So we're looking at a December 13th, 1985 release for Clue with a reported budget of $15 million. Its total box office run is $14.6 million. So it fails to recoup all of its uh, production budget there. Um, we're looking at an opening weekend of $2.14 million. And that's good enough for sixth place. Troy, listen to the films it gets beat by. Number one that weekend was Rocky Four. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, number two was yeah. The Jewel of the Nile. Okay. The number three film was one of the greatest Chevy Chase films of all times, Spies Like Us. Yes. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> number so four good. is White Knights. And number five, Santa Claus. Oh, boy. Um, surprisingly... Uh, I say surprisingly, I didn't, I don't, I don't know why I said that, but clue sits at a 71% with the critics and an 86 with the audience. And that's with over 50,000 reviews. So big ups on that. Um, sadly, our Christian website does not have a review of, uh, clue. Um, so I'm, and I'm not even going to try to make something funny up because, uh, there's some characters in here that they would have a problem with. So let's move on. And someone says something about being a communist. So, um, <laughs> all right. Films you could have seen in 1985. We have Runaway Train. Troy, stay tuned. Yeah, we're going to uh, talk about that one soon. And Spies Like Us. Man, I could have seen Runaway Train and Spies Like Us back to back. I would have been a, <laughs> a happy little boy. Uh, we got The Jewel of the Nile, The Color Purple, Out of Africa, uh, enemy mine, uh, ran, uh, the trip to, no, I'm sorry. The howling Two. your sister is a werewolf, oh. <laughs> uh, and Murphy's romance, Murphy's romance. Okay. That's Sally field. I think. Oh, that's right. Okay. I was like, who? Yes. Yes. It's, it's yes. a pretty good film actually. Yeah. If you say so, okay. that's all I got, Troy. All right. Well, this one is directed by Jonathan Lynn. Um, are either of you familiar with his body of work as a director? Yeah. You, you like him? I like some of his stuff. I mean, he directed My Cousin Vinny, which is very good. Mm -hmm. yeah. A couple other movies. He directed a movie called Greedy, which is not very good. <laughs> That's uh, so true. I think he was, you know, kind of a hit or miss journeyman director, made a couple of good films, made a couple that didn't quite succeed. I, I was going to say, I think he has two that succeed, uh, My Cousin Vinny and The Whole Nine Yards. Oh, whole nine yards. Yeah, it was another one. I, I was going to say there, there are a few more in his mm. filmography that I like. Um, he did Clue in 85. He followed that up five years later with Nuns on the Run. Now, I'm not saying Nuns on the Run is a comedic masterpiece, but Eric Idle does make me chuckle quite a bit in that film. Is that Robbie Coltrane as well? Yes, Robbie Coltrane. Okay. Um, my cousin, my cousin Vinny was 92. I, I agree with you. If you look at the filmography, like the ones that I like are probably Nuns on the Run, My Cousin Vinny. Um, I like Trial and Error from 97, that Michael Richards film. Only, yeah, that's underrated. Yeah, Rip Torn is amazing in that film. Yeah. And oh, that has a young Charlize Theron in it, too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. I haven't thought about Trial and Error in a long time. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, it's crazy. Whole nine yards. But you're right. Um, Wild Target in 2010 was the last thing that he directed. And the screenplay is done by him as well. Story by, now get this. This name's going to come up a couple times. Story yeah. by John Landis and Jonathan Lynn. Um, and we'll talk about why that's important, but obviously the movie is based on the board game Clue by Anthony E. Pratt. I didn't know this. Clue was originally called Cluedo, uh, and it was published in 1949. So it's been around oh. quite a bit. It, it actually resulted... Um, it, go back. There's a lot of cool stories about the creation of Clue 
but it has to do with World War II as well. So kind of interesting. Oh, the Nazis did it. The Nazis did it, yes. <laughs> um, produced by Deborah Hill. I think most people will know her because of her partnership with John Carpenter, Halloween mm-hmm. Fog, um, Escape from New York. Uh, cinematography by Victor J. Kemper. Now, this guy, he's been on the show before when we talked about Cloak and Dagger, um, which came out in 1984. Uh, so it's crazy. About this time period, he's doing like Cloak and Dagger, Secret Admirer in 1985. Um, National Lampoon's European Vacation in 85, Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 85. This guy's super busy. Ooh. Mm-hmm. If you go deeper. Even the cinematography on Pee-wee's Big Adventure is super underrated. Like that movie, that's why it holds up so well. Is like it, everything about it holds up well, but it actually is a really sh- shot really well. Yeah. Well, this guy also shot Friends of Eddie Coyle, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Jerk. His 70s work is fantastic. Ooh, that's unbeatable. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, let's talk about the cast. I, I, we're probably going to spend, and he did hot to trot. So let's he did just, hot to like, trot. Yes. <laughs> I, another movie that makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> we might have to talk about that. You might just have to have a show of like, here's three or four films. You, you can't talk about them for an hour, but you know, five minutes, 10 minutes here or there. Let's, let's talk about the people in front of the camera. I want to start with Tim Curry. Mike, what's your take on Tim Curry? Are you a fan? I love Tim Curry. And I, for like most people, I love him if for no other reason than his portrayal of Dr. Frank Enferter in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But he's a very talented guy, and he's certainly done a lot of varied work in his career. And he's one of those people that if he's in a movie, you know you're going to see at least one good thing. Man, that is a great summary. Um, Brad, we talked about Tim when we talked about Congo, but where where do you land with him? I absolutely love Tim Curry. He's one of my favorite is he a character actor? Probably one of my favorite character actors of all time. Uh, absolutely loved the guy. He was never above a part, but also loved the chew scenery. Um, I mean, that part in Congo, he is just absolutely chewing it all up, but doing it very well. Um, yeah, I mean, growing up, you know, he was the most terrifying person in the world because he played the devil and he played Pennywise, uh, but he was also like the lovable you know, Dr. Frankenfurter. So like, you know, he's in Amadeus, like all those, he was just so varied that you look back on his filmography and you're like, this guy did everything. I mean, he was usually the best part of films. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, The the year that clue came out, he did legend, which you referred to, which talk about two completely different roles. And he is almost, uh, I mean, that to me just shows how good of an actor he is when you look at those two films and they come out the same year. Yeah. Yeah. And legend in particular, he's the best thing in legend. He's really, really good in that movie. Yeah. I, I, it's hard. It's hard to be the best thing in a Tom Cruise film, but he is, Mm -hmm. I mean, outside of Tom Cruise, right? Tom Tom Cruise is usually the best thing in Tom Cruise film, but that's just a biased opinion. Um, this is what's interesting. So, you mentioned Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's kind of his first film. He's doing a lot of stage before that. So that's in 75. But um, he works on a film with John Landis, who directed it in 1991, Oscar, with Sylvester Stallone. I don't know if you guys ever saw that film. Oh. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that movie's terrible. I disagree. Um, no, that movie's terrible. I quite like that movie. Um, but he also worked with John Landis again in 2010 on um, Burke and Hare. So I, th- I think him and John oh, Landis right. are kind of friends because John Landis was originally supposed to direct Clue. 
yeah, I forgot about Burke and Hare. Yeah. <laughs> for, a, for a number of reasons, but hmm. yeah. Now there, yeah, I, there's I a movie. The, yeah. yeah. I didn't realize the two of them had that many connections. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't either. Um, well, well, we'll get to the production and development. I, we still got to go through this. Ca- this cast well, hold, is re- hold on. Yeah, what? Just for our buddy, Jose mm-hmm. in 2000, he was in the film, Charlie's angels directed by Mick G. Oh yeah. We try to forget that one, but moving no, on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Eileen Brennan as Mrs. Peacock, uh, nominated for best supporting actress in private Benjamin in 1980 also did another murder mystery comedy, um, which is another one I, I quite enjoy murder by death in 1976. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Yeah. My dad took me to see that when I was a kid in the theater. Super fun. Yeah. Um, we get Madeline Kahn as Mrs. White. Here's something I didn't realize. Totally love Madeline Kahn, but until you actually look at it, I, I don't know if you, for some reason, I, I keep thinking these films came out in different years, but um, worked a lot with Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which she steals the scene, both came out in 1974, um, which I, I totally Ooh, didn't realize. That's a that. great 1974. Yes. We also have Christopher Lloyd as Professor Plum, which most people know him as Doc Brown from the Back to the Future trilogy. Uh, Michael McKeon as Mr. Green. I don't know about you guys. Here's another actor I think is kind of underrated, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and people I'm, think of him as Lenny. You know, I mean, he, he's one of those people like Michael Richards or Henry Winkler who kind of got associated with a part. But, uh, you know, he has done so much fantastic work over the years. I agree. He's completely underrated. Yeah. I, I'm sure he was in Coneheads, a previous episode. He was in Coneheads. Um, mm-hmm. I loved him in Laverne and Shirley as Lenny. He's fantastic. I keep forgetting he did a stint on SNL as well, TV work. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think I think the pinnacle of his career is pretty much all of his work with Christopher Guest, specifically um, This Is Spinal Tap, which came out in 1984, a year before Clue. Yeah. Uh, Martin Mole as Colonel Mustard. Now, <laughs> anytime I see this name, I always associate Mr. Mom. I mean, I think he's another great character actor, but I really loved him in that film. Leslie Ann Warren as Miss Scarlet, really impressive filmography, but another one that has a Best Supporting Actress nomination for Victor Victoria from 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee Ving plays Mr. Body. We've talked about him early on when we first started the the podcast uh, when we were discussing 1984 Streets of Fire. Oh, okay. <laughs> Shut it. How come how come You're I so wrong on that, that film? You're so wrong on that film, Brad. Wonderful movie. Thank you, Mike. I, I'm gonna wait since you guys are disagreeing. I'll I'll break the tie. And, and once again, proof Mike is a genius. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um some other names that are really interesting. Colleen Camp as Yvette. Now the year this came out, she was also in Police Academy 2, their first assignment, Due in Time, and Daryl which just got a nice 4K release. What, from Vinegar Syndrome? Vinegar Syndrome, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned this already, Mike. You get a brief appearance from Jane Weedlin, rhythm guitarist mm-hmm. for the Go-Go's. She plays the uh, singing telegram girl. Yeah. Um, another like really small cameo that shows up towards the end is Howard Hessman. He plays the evangelist who turns out to be like chief of police or FBI. Um, the same year that this came out, he also was in Police Academy 2, their first assignment. And I think most people growing up in the 80s at this time would know him as Johnny Fever from WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah, classic show. Uh, I don't know, guys. What do you think about that cast? That cast for like mid-80s film? Pretty stackable. Yeah, it's fantastic. So we talked about this film. Quick little things on production and development. 
Um, it had three endings. So ending A, Yvette kills the cook and body Sp- under hey, orders. Spoil- spoiler. Yeah, we're spoiling this. It's okay. 85. Yeah. <laughs> so um, ending A, Yvette killed the cook and Mr. Body under orders from Scarlet, who then killed the other victims. Ending B, Miss Peacock killed everybody. Ending C, apart from Mr. Green, everybody committed one murder and Wadsworth, um, Tim Curry, is, is the real Mr. Body. So here's where it gets interesting. The multiple endings idea was actually developed by John Landis, who was originally set to direct Clue um, and claimed in an interview to have invited playwright Tom Stoppard, writer and composer Stephen Sondheim, and actor Anthony Perkins to write the screenplay. The script was ultimately finished by Jonathan Lynn, who was invited to direct it as well. A fourth ending, I don't know if you guys knew this, was actually filmed. It's It's a weird ending. Yeah, have you heard about this fourth ending? I, have, I can't yeah. imagine what else happens in it. Do you do you do you want to describe it, Brad? Uh, so, like again, Wadsworth commits all the murders, and he essentially re- poisons everybody with the champagne or something yep. like that to leave. Like, so there's no witnesses, and then the police slash FBI arrive. Um, and he's arrested, but the dogs break free and he, no, steals he breaks a police free car. Oh yeah. He, yeah, he steals a police car, but the dogs get him cause they're in the back seat or something. It's like a really, really weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it, it's exactly right. He's motivated because of his desire for perfection. Wadsworth. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, and he reports that he poisoned the champagne. The police show up, arrest him. He escapes, steals a car, but in the car that he stole, there's um, police dogs in the back, and then they eat him or whatever. So <laughs> if you get the novelization of Clue, you can actually read this fourth ending. It's in there. Wow. Uh, here's some other interesting facts. Carrie Fisher was originally cast to portray Miss Scarlet, but withdrew to enter treatment for drug and alcohol addiction. She was replaced by Leslie Ann Warren. Jonathan Lynn's first choice for Wadsworth was actor Leonard Rossiter but he died before filming convent, uh, commenced. This is, this is kind of crazy. The second choice was Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean oh. himself. Yeah. But it was decided he was not sufficiently popular enough. So they cast Tim Curry instead. And this is kind of interesting too. So 1985, all of these people in front of the camera, they're at various stages of their career, some more popular than others. But the entire cast was paid the same salary and billing despite their different levels of popularity and notability. And um, I think this kind of comes through a little bit, but Jonathan Lynn screened his girl Friday for the cast as inspiration for how everybody should deliver their lines in the film. So just a little bit about the production and development. I don't know about you guys. Um, I'm ready to talk about this film. So how about we just take a quick break and we come back. We'll, we'll share our thoughts on 1985's Clue. So stay tuned. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, we represent 
the National Committee to give crime a break. We believe the criminal profession has become too difficult. Understand? Yeah, that's right. Police procedures are too sophisticated, and the perpetration of unlawful acts is too dangerous. Yeah. In short, crime just isn't any fun, see? Therefore, we request... No, we demand... ...that you give crime a break. Bring back Inspector Clouseau. Peter Sellers is back as Inspector Clouseau in The Return of the Pink Panther. Allow me to introduce myself. Ah! I am Inspector Clouseau of the Sûreté. How can an idiot be a policeman? Answer me that! Sir, simple. All he has to do is enlist. The Return of the Pink Panther. Rated G. General audiences. Okay, Mike, since you are the professional critic, we're going to turn it over to you. Walk us through your your thoughts on Clue. I, I don't know if if this was your first time watch or you've seen it a few times or even if you saw it in the theater. I saw it uh, for the first time in the 80s when it came out on VHS. Okay. And it had all three endings, which I think is the version that they have made the official one for all the home video releases. So I saw it back then and I really didn't like it. I really didn't think it was funny. So then I watched it again two days ago in preparation for the show. It's like, I'm going to give this another chance. I was a teenager back then, you know, going to look at it with fresh eyes now. And I still didn't like it. I, I don't understand what is supposed to be funny in this movie. Wow. Okay. You know, I just, I just don't get, and you know, the, one of the reasons I was so excited that you guys asked me to come on this particular episode is that the local high school did clue as their fall play. And my son, my 15-year-old son, landed the part of Professor Plum. Oh, okay. And so I, I went and I saw the play a couple months ago, and I saw the movie. And it, it's very similar. The, a lot of the lines from the film are used in the play version. Uh, but I laughed throughout during the high school play and didn't laugh at all during the movie. And I think the reason for that, and the reason I don't really care for Clue, is that this kind of screwball comedy is funny when it's unbroken. When I saw a bunch of high school kids up on the stage running around from one side to another and one room to another and talking fast and interrupting each other, that was funny because it was happening live, whereas the movie has editing. Yeah. And I think that the editing in this movie takes away from the comedy because it breaks up that pace that you need. And so I, th that was, I, you know, I didn't realize in 86 why I didn't like the movie. I just thought it was funny. But looking at it today, having seen the play and i admit i'm biased because my son was in it but I, I think i know now why i don't like it and that's why that kind of fast-paced farce has to be fast-paced i think the pacing of this movie is too slow that's really interesting because this film um i i when i read that he had shown his girl friday for this i'm like obviously this is i think the 80s had a few of these well murder by death that we just talked about is right. in that same vein where they're really trying to to bring back that 30s and 40s screwball comedy. 
something like Preston Sturgis, um, Howard mm-hmm. Hawks and, and stuff like that. And uh, I, I haven't seen that attempt for a while because I think it's one of the hardest types of comedies to make, to yeah. be quite honest, because it relies on the editing, like you talked about. It also heavily relies on the performance, like to deliver those lines at a fast pace and to not take a beat in the comedy to go on to the next thing and mm-hmm. let the audience catch up. I don't, I don't know if there's an appetite for that, to be quite honest. Um, but it, it's really interesting to me. I had read that the play started circulating and there were additional scenes that they put in there as well. Um, did You said it was very close, though, to the film. Were, did they yeah. have a couple of new things in there? Um, no, I mean, everything was pretty much the same. They do the, the multiple endings uh, in it. So it's, it ends one way and then the kids all pretend to rewind themselves and then it goes to another ending. So it was very similar to the movie. Okay. Was there any performance that you thought, um, okay, take away the problems with the editing or maybe even other performances that stood out among the cast? Um, I, I mean, I think Tim Curry is probably the best of them. And th- and this is not a criticism of him when I say this. It's more a criticism of the movie. Again, when I saw the high school production, the kid who played Wadsworth was incredible. I mean, this kid's going to be a star someday. But there's that whole scene at the end where Wadsworth recreates everything that happened. He goes into that long monologue, recapping the entire movie up to that point. Yeah. And watching somebody on a stage do that in one unbroken take, and he's running around and he's talking real fast that's really funny. And in the movie, Tim Curry comes in one room and he says something and then they all run to another room and it's a different shot. And then he delivers the next part of the monologue and then they all run to a different room and he delivers the third part of the monologue and so on and so on. So I I think that Tim Curry did the best he could, but he's in a movie that fundamentally doesn't have the right pace or the right style to pull that off. Okay. So one of the criticisms, This, this movie needed a winner. Uh, is what you're saying. Like it needed a one take. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Like when Fred Astaire would do his dances, he always insisted on screen that they pull the camera back, that they not film him in close up, so that you could see his feet. And he didn't want a lot of editing. And that's why Fred Astaire dance scenes are so magical because you see him performing pretty much the whole dance. And I think that clue, the movie would have been funnier if they had had fewer edits and just let the actors come in and build it on the strength of their chemistry together, as opposed to trying to edit together a story because let's face it. I mean, you, when you watch this movie, you don't care about story, right? Yeah. I, I mean, is that a fair assessment that it's, no, it's yeah, really yeah. kind of secondary to the mayhem and the hijinks. And it's, it's odd. You say that I don't care. I mean, it's a, it's a murder mystery, right? Yeah. And the gimmick is all three endings are supposed to work. Yes. Which is hard to do. Yeah. I, yes. And I'm, I'm wondering if, it's a case of the editing is important because they, they talk about certain sequences of, well, do you remember who's not in this scene or not mm-hmm. here? And this person's supposed to be going through, you know, the secret passage to murder this person, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering from a technical perspective, if the comedy was really good and maybe the delivery was good, but they have to edit it in such a way to make each of the endings work or an ending stick that they use. Yeah. And as a result, it sacrifices some of the, the pace and the timing because in mm-hmm. reading old reviews of it, I think everybody, um, when it initially came out critic wise, f- thought it felt kind of flat. And, 
you would you would see this term over and over again where it it kind of gets to a point where it starts to run out of gas and then yeah. you get these three wrap ups so um i i can totally see your point of view on that what what was your take on it brad is is this um I, we we talked to so many people who love this film. I didn't know if this is one that you've rewatched on a regular basis or. Uh, no, this is probably my second or third time seeing this. And, and of course I did not see it in a the theater, but um, I mean, I, I find it quite pedestrian at best. Um, so it, I think it's beholden to the board game all, too much. So we have to introduce all of our characters because we're in a mystery. So we need to know who all these people are. So the opening sequence is just people showing up to the house one after the other after the other. And then we literally get a scene where weapons are handed out and we're like, okay, because this is the clue board game movie, we have to have these scenes. Um, and, and, and I, I don't know if I'm, if this is me or, or the type of films these are, but I'm finding films like this that I know that there's going to be a moment where someone says, stop, I know what happened. And they go through what happened and we find out all the twists and like some of the stuff we didn't really have, we weren't privy to um, say, you know, someone knows secret passages and, and, and has access to weapons or whatever. Um, you always know that's going to happen in the third act, uh, late in the third act. And here it does, but I'm like, does that make me like really not care much about like the first two thirds of the film? If I'm just know at some point in time, someone's going to explain the whole film to me and literally Tim care, Tim Curry, like stops and explains it like hits the rewind. Like we're space balling this movie where we're going back and then we're, you know, showing what happened. He's telling what happened. Um, and I, I don't know, man. Like, I just, I'm not, it, it just makes me not care about the first little bit of the film because I'm like, well, just get to the part where they tell me what happened. Like, just get to the, the uh, that's what I'm here for. I'm here for the mystery part. And I just kind of want to know how it's solved. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if that's like a weird thing on me. Like I'm getting that way about like films. I know there's going to be a twist. Are you starting I'm to read like, like the back of a book? Um, like the yeah, last I chapter the cliff, of the mystery. Give me the cliff notes. Give me the cliff notes of murder mysteries. Yeah. Okay. But like, even the films, I know that there's going to be a twist. Like, there, the way they like withhold information or, uh, you know, kind of don't really tell the truth within scenes, and then they go back and then kind of say, "Oh, but this is what really happened." Uh, I, I'm starting to like not really care about that because it's just like <laughs> I just get to the point where I don't feel dumb. Um, but I think you know the best part about this is the cast. I just wish some of them were able to shine a little bit more. Um, Curry is obviously the star, and his performance is fun, and at, at least he's doing something. But <clears throat> this, it's just really boring like I, I again the first act is like everyone getting introduced and that could be fine but it's really not um and there's like the weird awkward like dinner or scene for a little bit i just i don't know i i really didn't find much enjoyment in in this um 
I think the the best thing you can say about it, it is roughly like 90 minutes. Um, and the last little bit is like three different endings. And, and, and that's, I think where my beef really starts is I know it's a gimmick, but you have to like make those three endings work. Um, and to me, it's like, you didn't really commit like in poker. They didn't go all in on an ending. They went, you know, they, they just said, well, we have to have, we're going to do three different ones. Cause that's our gimmick. So none of them really, I, I found like satisfactory. They're all just fine. And I, I guess that would be my overall review is like, it's, it's fine. Maybe it's okay to find. I wouldn't say it's good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well summarized. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of knew just when, when we, brought up John Landis's Oscar from 91 and both of yours reactions like, ah, oh, that movie's not very good. It's like, well, then you pretty much showed your hand on clue. I think <laughs> because I, <laughs> I guess think, the humor is a little bit the same. It, the, I think both movies are cut from the same cloth and obviously it would make sense if John Landis had his hand on this script and then he does Oscar. But I'm, I'm thinking about these films that came out in the eighties, maybe early nineties. Um, another one that comes to mind is noises off, which I think was a, is that one a stage play that was converted over to a film? Yeah. John Ritter and um uh-huh. oh Christopher Reeves was in that, I think. Is it, it had a stacked cast as well. Absolutely. Okay. There, there was just this attempt um to really go back and capture that 30s and 40s comedy, that screwball comedy. But then why did they set this in 1954? Um I I think <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, okay. to me, it's you could set it in the forties or fifties, and for an eighties audience, they'll you know, especially for the demographic that this I, okay. this was probably geared towards, it wouldn't have mattered. Been like, oh, those are the old timey days. You know, that's what teenagers were thinking when we were going to the to the movie theaters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one hundred percent, it it's trying to get that bringing up baby Philadelphia story, um, Miracle of Morgan's Creek vibe, and. It's not at those levels. I, I'm I'm not saying that at all. But I think you both are totally wrong. I, <laughs> I think there's a reason why the audience score is there. And, and and at first I thought it was nostalgia. Like, do do so many people did they just grow up with this thing on VHS or HBO or something of that nature? And it's like comfort food. But I gotta tell you, every time I watch this thing, I still laugh. And I think I think there are problems with the edit- editing. For me, it does start to lose a little steam at some point. But every time when I think it's running out of gas, it throws something up there, either th- through some zaniness, some performance. Um, I mean, Jane Wheatland shows up as like a, <laughs> um, a singing telegraph and gets shot. <laughs> and you're like, what is that about? Just out of nowhere. Yeah. As soon as you recognize her, she's shot. Yeah. Um, and I, mean, I love Shack is probably my least favorite song of all time. So maybe I was happy love to Shaq. see shot. We're talking the Go-Go's, Brad. Oh, sorry. I thought you said, I thought you not the B-52s. I'm sorry. 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 <laughs> Continue. Edit that out later. Sure. I don't want to sound stupid. Oh, no, it's staying in. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I truly, I truly find this film is it's not laugh out loud funny, but I chuckle a lot. Even in the beginning, there's these small jokes where Tim Curry, uh, Tim Curry like takes care, Wadsworth takes care of the dogs, obviously steps in poo, 
And then for the first five minutes, as he's walking around meeting everybody, everybody just starts sniffing and checking yeah. their shoes. <laughs> it, it okay, makes can me... I tell you why I didn't find that funny? Why? <laughs> it's, oh, God, this is – I'm such a jerk. But so he is cleaning off his shoes, yeah. right, on the little thing. The thing is still clean after he like wipes his shoes off. And I kept worried. I was kept was like, well, why did he wipe off his shoes? They didn't get anything off. But that was, that that's, was my, that's mindset. what killed the humor for you. Yeah, it actually did. Okay. <laughs> there, it, there's the, the Michael McKean character, which I, I actually think he's quite fantastic in this film, but where everybody is, is trying to, when they're, when they're going to go in pairs and investigate the house and, uh, you know, Yvette, um, is scared and who's going to go with her and all these guys are volunteering and then Michael McKean's like not me and just turns around <laughs> because of who his oh, character true, because is. he's supposed to be gay it is it's funny that's that's the that's the okay but it's funny um I don't know Tim Tim Curry I think is he has this energy throughout the entire film that even when somebody else's line delivery is flat or um you know Martin Mull or, or Leslie and Warren, if, if they're, if they're just not working in their delivery or in that particular scene, here comes Tim Curry to save everybody. In my He's opinion. got that cocaine energy in this movie. He does. And it's that <laughs> cocaine energy that I think is just gives this thing a pace that, yeah, it starts to slow down a little moments when he's not on screen. But I think our director is very smart to say, don't spend too many too many scenes away from Tim Curry. Like mm -hmm. he has to he has to be in this film a lot or else it's going to lose that energy. Um and I do think it handles its slapstick and falls like when you get, you know, I think it's McKean and Tim Curry like running into each other on the second floor. It works. The timing's great. I think they do a really good job of trying to capture that screwball comedy. But I will be the first to say that there are parts when it does feel to drag, and, I, and it's totally when Tim Curry's not on screen. Yeah, and I for me, that's the other problem with the movie. I mean, first of all, let me say that I, I do not find any fault with anybody who likes this movie because we all like what we like. And I'm oh, a yeah. guy who came on your show and defended nothing but trouble as a masterpiece. <laughs> so, but, I, you know, it, you have this amazing cast, and I think that the movie does get bogged down in trying to make the plot work yeah. and the three different endings. And so none of these actors really have a chance to bring their characters fully to life. I think that's what that's where it fails in being like the old Preston Sturgis movies or something is that the actors don't have a lot of room to breathe. For example, you have Madeline Kahn, one of the funniest people ever to walk the face of the earth. And I can't really think of a single memorable thing that she does in this movie because it just doesn't give her room to really play a character. And you didn't you know, like her, like her speech at the end when she's talking about the, the headaches and everything. I, I that's the only part that made me chuckle. Okay. <laughs> but you know, I, I that's I an did, example of what I wanted more of. If you have right. Madeline Kahn in your movie, let her do that. If you have, um, you know, Martin Mull, let him play up Colonel Mustard's stuffiness. Right. And, and I feel like they let Tim Curry have the cocaine energy and everybody else had to pull it in a little bit when the movie would have been much better if they'd have gone bigger and broader with their performances. I can see that. I, I can totally see that. I mean, um, and I would agree with you. I, I would say that it's, if you go back and look at the cast, it's, um, it really is Colleen camp and Michael McKeon and, and primarily Tim Curry. To me, those are the three that when they're on screen, something's going on. I feel the energy. 
Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it's right there. It, it, like to see a subdued Christopher Lloyd is like really disappointing. He's he's a little creepy in this film too. Yeah, yeah. he's got some pedophile energy going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and let I mean but, every, but that's just like the thing, man. It's like let him cook, man. Let Christopher Lloyd cook. I, yeah. I do agree with you. I, I would say for everybody else, if you if you look at that cast and go, Christopher Lloyd probably I, I don't know if we're doing a ranking. But Martin Mull and Christopher Lloyd are sort of at the bottom tier in terms of the performances and, and maybe even the comedy. Leslie Ann Warren probably finds herself in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really, I, I don't know. Um, Madeline Kahn, I, I, she has her moments, although it's too few. But I put her with Leslie Ann Warren. And then at the top of it, it is Tim Curry, Colleen Camp, um, and Michael McKeon, I think, really make this film work. And the fact that they interact with everybody they're they're making those scenes work and they're making them really fun. Like the scenes mm. with Martin Mull and Leslie Ann Warren don't work for me. Like th- those yeah. are kind of boring. But the the pairings of Michael McKeon and, and Colleen Camp just st- <laughs> you know standing at the bottom of the stairs waiting to see who's going to go first, and then it, there's just this long take and nobody does anything. I I laughed at that. Um, there are those little moments that they're subtle. It's not belly laughs, laugh, laugh out loud funny, but I, I think, I think those particular cast members really bring it together. Yeah. And you know, Christopher Lloyd is a great example because Robert Zemeckis was smart enough to say to Christopher Lloyd, go big playing yeah. Doc Brown. A- and that character is so memorable because he was over the top. And that's what I would have wanted to see Christopher Lloyd do in this movie. You know, you're, you're right. He is on the lowest tier in terms of being funny in this movie. And I think that if they had let him go bigger or bring more color to that character, he would be up there with Tim Curry. Cause obviously he has the talent. That's, that's true. I, I agree. I, I can totally see, like I would have loved to have seen your son's play. Like I really want to see this live because I think this would make a great stage play. I, yeah, it really I, does. Yeah. I, I do think the editing and trying to shoehorn in three possible endings does detract from the quote unquote story. Mm-hmm. But I, I still, this man, I still think this thing is saved by just it's zany moments. I think there are more of them than less of them. Um, and some of those key performances just make me smile. Uh, I think, it, I think it's a little bit, you know, it's not going to capture the Preston Sturgis uh, iconic screwball comedy but it's a it's a pretty good Xerox copy of it, in my opinion. And and I'll say this: I went back and watched Oscar the next day after this. Oh my god! Uh-huh. Because as Tim Curry, and same thing, Tim Curry should he's not in he should be in that film more, but him and Chaz Palminteri are just scene stealers in Oscar. I laughed out loud um, anytime they were doing something, and I think Sylvester Stallone actually does pretty good with the material, even though it's outside of his comfort zone. Mm-hmm. but I I'm really curious now to go back and watch these other comedies like noises off, et cetera, that they're trying to do. And I, I don't know about you guys. I, I kind of miss that. I mean, where, where is our screw? I guess Jennifer Lawrence tried it last, last summer with, I mean, I, I think she did a very good job in that film. No hard feelings is, is really funny. Yeah. And I feel no hard feelings is kind of tries to capture the same thing that this was going off of. And I, I wish we had a lot more of these things. And also, um, anyone but you, which is out now, has kind of that old, 
that old vibe, you know, with the romantic couple, but they sort of hate each other and the fast talking and yeah. some of the more slapsticky moments. That's another one that kind of updates the the old premise. I wonder if people think slapstick and they think kind of dumb. Probably. Yeah. Do, do you think do you think the parody movies kind of killed the slapstick genre? I mean, think about all the scary movies and and the naked guns and everything else. Did, did that pretty much to your point, Brad? As soon as slapstick is entered into it and you get that physical comedy, does everybody kind of go, oh, it only works in these parody films. It can't be done because no hard feelings, in my opinion, should have been a bigger hit. And it has mm-hmm. a lot of slapstick in it. And I'm, I'm surprised it didn't make three times the amount of money it did. Well, I, I wonder if the rated R. Well, well, well yeah, well, you know, the, the rated R. I don't know if that helped it or hurt it. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the beach scene is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. So that that's true. Uh, um, probably so. Cause I'm thinking, I'm trying to think the last time we had a screwball comedy and it's, mm. well, you know, you think about all these like, uh, like stand up comedians. It seems like the only thing they'll do is like screwball comedies. And then you're like, well, why am I seeing this comedian do something that they're really not, that's really not their act. Um, I'm thinking of like, I don't know, like, uh, I know Pauly Shore is not a stand-up comedian, but you know, and, and Rob Schneider and, and all those guys, like they seem like they would come in and do screwball stuff, but it wasn't really like, is happy, happy Madison. Like, are they screwball comedies? I'm trying uh, to think uh, I guess happy Gilmore, a screwball comedy. I, it's Billy Madison, a screwball comedy. I, th- I think, and I, I would defer to you guys too. To, to me, if I'm thinking about this particular genre, there has to be a couple of elements. A, it has to have that fast-talking, slapstick, um, but it's elevated to a certain degree because it's more reliant on the dialogue and the exchanges. I think to your point, Mike, it usually has to do with um, chemistry between you know two people and mm-hmm. a little bit of one-upsmanship going on between them. I'm thinking of stuff like Philadelphia Story or Bring Up Baby, et cetera. Yeah. But to me, something like Billy Madison um, or Happy Gilmore, they are slapstick comedies, but they're not the screwball comedies. Like if, if Tommy you go, Boy? I, I don't know. You have Spade and, and Chris Farley, so they're playing off of each other. There, there's just a difference, and and maybe I'm not articulating enough. There's a there's something in the script, and there's something in the delivery, like His Girl Friday, or even the the remake they did with Burt Reynolds and um, Kathleen Turner and Christopher Reeves switching channels. Channels, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another one that came out of the '80s that was trying to capture it. But if you look at the dialogue and the pacing of that film compared to something like uh, anything that Adam Sandler does or your stand-up comedians, it's entirely different. I'm. I'm not saying it's smarter comedy, but it relies on the audience to keep up to the pace. Does that make sense? I, I think it is uh, an, a matter of intelligence. I think that the screwball comedies were smart. And the Adam Sandler, David Spade, Chris Farley comedies, I don't mean this as an insult to those guys, but they were dumb comedies. They yeah. were comedies yeah. where they often played the dumbest person in the room. And the humor was, it just worked at one level, which was you know that common denominator uh, well, and them being dumb was kind of the joke, right? right? Like they were so dumb that what what they did was the joke, right? So I think that's what differentiates yeah. something like Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore from His Girl Friday. That's true. You know, it's, it's kind and, of the intent of the humor. 
Clue might be that transition film, if you think about it. Like the the elements I like on of Clue, that where I think the humor really um, shines is its subtlety and it's in delivery. And here's the line, and we move on to the next scene. Like it is fast paced, mm-hmm. but the dumb moments in Clue, I don't find funny. Um, and it almost feels like it's a transition between, you know, Clue is that sort of midpoint by, okay, we, we have murder by death or, you know, some of those other comedies that come before it, then you get into the eighties. And then from clue on, you know, you will get a, a Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, Tommy boy, stuff like that. Clue is almost dipping its toes into that while still trying to retain its screwball comedy DNA. Mm-hmm. It, it almost feels like that midpoint. Hmm. Yeah. And I think a movie from the eighties that maybe captured that a little bit better. You can tell me if you agree would be funny farm. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, which kind of—I mean, Chevy Chase was a mod. Yeah, of course, it had to be a Chevy Chase movie, okay? <laughs> right, but but I mean, it had that same kind of feel as those older movies, and in this case, the relationship was really Chevy Chase versus the rest of the town. Uh, you know, but it was very—it was funny and it was silly, but it was silliness pitched a little higher than, for example, Spies Like Us. You know, or some of Chevy's other movies. But I some would, of the other I would even say. I agree with you 100% about Funny Farms. Like, I, that's one of my favorite Chevy Chase films. Um, yeah. And it is sort of like a, a Norman Rockwell painting gone wrong. Um, but I would even say Spies Like Us feels more like a screwball comedy because, yeah, there's some stupid humor in there. But some of the jokes come fast and furious in that thing, too. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Uh, but again, John Landis, right? Uh, yeah, I, I just thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny how he keeps popping up in in this conversation. <laughs> well, because you know, you think of John Landis, most people think of Animal House and Blues Brothers, and maybe Coming to America, you know, which were a certain kind of film. But then there was this whole other side to his career with these other titles that we're talking about. Well, it's it's funny. You think of um, what Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, and even American Werewolf in London. The comedic elements in those two films are fantastic, but. They it does have smart humor. It it really yeah. does. Blues Brothers has some it's spectacle, but a lot of the jokes are pretty smart. The whole like we play both kinds of music here, country and western. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great line. It, it's fantastic. But there's you know John Landis is a fan of Preston Sturgis. He's a he's a fan of Billy Wilder, um, Howard Hawks. He, he's he's a fan of that as much as he's a fan of the Universal Monster films. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, American Werewolf is almost a, a, a merge of the things that he likes from a comedy and horror aspect. But it's funny that John Landis's output in the '80s and you, Clue included, because he you know did the story on it. He he's still trying to bring that genre back, and you know to to some degrees he's more successful than others. I I find Clue um, just as funny as Funny Farm. Well, I don't know, just as funny. I really like Funny Farm. We'll say Clue. I just I, I, with with Clue. I just I just found it like I could just see the end of the rope with me, and it wasn't <laughs> that long. <laughs> Pun intended, Brad. Yeah, yeah, end yeah. The rope. yeah. In the library, yeah. <laughs> Brad, Brad hung himself with the rope <laughs> <laughs> because of Clue. <laughs> because of Clue. Uh, yeah, I I don't know this. The four did did anybody watch the new Shout Factory 4K on this? Yeah, I I bought this damn thing. Okay. Oh, I just streamed it on Paramount Plus. Okay. Was it in high def or how did, how did the picture look? It looked pretty good. 
Yeah, I got to say that 4K, it looked gorgeous. Um, hmm. It was it was nice. I would yeah. really like them to go back and do a lot more 80s films in 4K. There's just, there's just something about it looks really good. Imagine how good Nothing But Trouble would look in 4K. Oh, man, that knows. <laughs> it may oh, happen man. since Shop Factory uh, did, did Clue. I bet you they'll go back to that one. They've been going back to all their older titles, so I'm sure it's coming. Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned it a few times, but give me that Spies Like Us. Yeah, oh yeah, that needs to happen sooner um, than later. Well, any any other thoughts on this film, Mike? Uh, you know, I think it was an admirable attempt, even though it doesn't work for me. Uh, it, it was an admirable attempt to do something different, and the fact that all these years later, people still enjoy that movie and it does have high audience ratings and Rotten Tomatoes. They did something right. You know, it may not work for me, but it works for a lot of other people, and so I think that you can't discount that. Uh, so they they tried to do something really radical and really different for some people it works for some people it doesn't but i personally would rather have movies that do take chances even if those chances don't pay off so i i applaud the intent of the movie even though the final product doesn't quite work for me so i do have a question between the three endings which one worked for you or which one was your favorite of the three i think the first one uh is probably the best and makes the most sense okay so that's scarlet ends up being the the main villain yeah. out of that the one where everybody committed a different murder that just feels too forced i like it when there's just one person okay okay all right brad any other final thoughts on this one no i mike was talking about how he likes you know uh films that you know take a chance and, and, and at least go for something I was just thinking, wow, we could just give this movie a participation trophy and call it a day. Uh, <laughs> this, yeah, the clue, the participation trophy of movies. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. I, I was just really bored. Um, and once you get through the introduction of all the characters, there's really not much that goes on. It's just a bunch of people going from room to room, and I don't know. I find that kind of boring. Um, so, yeah. But I did like the first, I think the first ending should have been the one they stuck with and just played the film as that was going to be the ending. I think they could have maybe given some more clues. Like, you know, we haven't even talked about it, but, you know, Ryan Johnson probably used, I don't know this for a fact, but used probably clue for inspiration or at least some sort of inspiration for Knives Out and Glass Onion. Uh, but I think those films handle it a lot better. Because once you go back and, and, and watch it, you can see how everything worked out. Here, I don't think you can do that, which to me doesn't make a very good mystery film. Yeah. yeah. I, Bingo. That's true, but I don't I don't go to Clue uh, from a mystery perspective. Like when you when you see that cast, like I really could care less what the mystery is. And and in fact I, I agree with you both. The first ending with Scarlet sort of being the culprit is the best one because I think it has the best zaniness to it, especially that exchange over there's no more bullets in that gun and they're going the <laughs> yeah. one plus two plus two plus one. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the kind of screwball dialogue. Oh, so you like the math part of this film, Troy? I don't like the math say? part of it. I just I think it's funny how they're both arguing back and forth and trying to count um, but it, it's, it's a great example. Uh, and I, I probably sum up the movie in that exchange where they're both going back and forth 
And, you know, Tim Curry is so convinced that there's no more bullets in it. And then she kind of buys that, but you get this whole exchange at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The exchange is what's funny. I don't really care if there's a bullet left or not in the gun, but watching those two go back and forth makes me laugh all the time. So when, when you see the cast of characters and you see who's playing these characters, um, and I would say in the first 10 minutes, you know, some of the, the jokes that end up being there, um, if, if you're like, man, I'm, I'm just not into this, you're not going to be into the rest of the film to be quite honest. The, yeah. the first 15 minutes really set the template for everything else to follow. Um, but I, I, I really do think it does a good job of trying to kind of bring back those older comedies and man, you know, again, th- those three, um, Colleen, Michael and, and Tim, I think they own this thing like that. That's to me why you watch this film is those three actors they're they're fantastic in it but so i i gotta ask you mike are, are you calling this thing a bomb i i gotta go with bomb even though i have some respect for the intent i don't think the execution works so yeah i gotta vote bomb all right what about you brad a uh, bomb i'm dissenting and it's definitely not a bomb so i'm going in the positive camp with the uh, audience score on this one respect all right. Well, hey, Mike, you are like always super busy. Um, can you really just give us um, just a window into how everybody can find you and all the stuff that it, like is going on? Because outside of even your website, you actually write for a couple of other websites, too. Um, right. But yeah. Yeah. Um, you can find my my movie reviews updated multiple times per week at aisleseat.com, spelled as in sitting in an aisle seat at the movie theater. I also write uh, longer form things for Ranker, which is Ranker.com. And I'm on Twitter. Well, I guess we can't call it Twitter anymore, can we? It's now X. X. Yeah. I'm on there at aisle seat. Um, are you planning to do anything special for the Oscars coming up? I haven't decided yet. Um, I might. I might. If I do something, I want to come up with something different from what everybody else is doing. So still okay. trying to work that out. How about, and I got to ask this, any new possible books on the horizon? Because you, you've had a couple of books that are published. Um, yeah. The, the first one, they're both fantastic. I think we actually gave some away on the show as well. But you want to talk about those real quick? Uh, yeah, my first book was called Straight Up Layton, which was a book of just movie-related essays and humor pieces. The second was My Year of Chevy, where I watched every Chevy Chase movie over the course of 12 months and wrote about them. And uh, since you asked about the book, yeah, I do have a third one in the works. I was working on it yesterday. Uh, I'm hoping to get it out sometime this year. But uh, with all the other writing I do, I'm kind of doing it a little bit piecemeal. But, yeah, there is a third book on the way. I can't wait. And and they can everybody can find those books on Amazon, right? Yes, they're on Amazon. Yeah. I, I encourage everybody, if you haven't picked it up, they're fantastic reads. Um, straight up blatant. I think I think that's where uh, we became friends. Yep. <laughs> Cause that, that book was fantastic. And, and thank you that, uh, the title of the book came from some feedback you got from somebody, right? Yeah. I got a piece of hate mail from a reader who told me that my, my opinion was straight up blatant, <laughs> which was, you know, a, a misuse of that, of those two words, those two adjectives, but I liked it. Cause I think movie critics should be straight up and they should be blatant with their views. And so I took it as a compliment and gave my book that title and didn't pay the guy who, Gave me the title, so even better. 
Stick it to yeah, him. Yeah, screw him. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, we got to have you back on, but I know you're a big horror fan, so the next time we have you on, we need to pick like a horror film that bombed. Maybe you can recommend a couple to us behind the scenes. Oh, I, I, yeah, I would love to come on and talk about horror. Yeah, because I, I, I love reading all your reviews, especially when a new horror film comes out, because um, I, I would say nine times out of ten, I'm in a 100% agreement with you. But uh, I know your horror knowledge goes pretty deep on that, too. Yeah, big horror buff. Awesome. Well, Brad. Yeah, I'd love to come back sometime. Yeah, you just give us some titles you want to talk about, and and we will definitely do those. Yeah, I love talking to you guys. This is always so much fun. We we love having you, man. Um, Brad, what are we talking about next week? We are talking about 2017's uh, action thriller, uh, American Assassin. Oh, what do you what do you think about that one, Mike? Oh. Boy, I'm struggling to remember which one that was. Michael this... Keaton, our 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 uh, one of our mascots oh. we have for this film, uh, this podcast is Dylan O'Brien. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I don't remember what I thought of that one. Must not have been too much. If I think <laughs> Taylor Kitsch is also <laughs> Taylor in that, Kitsch. so we yeah. know it bombed because Taylor right. Kitsch was in it. So. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll be fun. Um, what else is going on? I, I think we're doing another classic here this month, right? In a couple of weeks. We are. We are doing Deliverance this month because nothing oh. says love like Deliverance. Yeah, that was that was unplanned. It just landed that way. I know. It, it, <laughs> the things that happen when we plan things out, you're just like, oh, what a coincidence. My parents took me to see that at the drive-in when I was four. Oh, boy. Oh. Wow. Well, Did- they they were going to see it. They expected me to lay down in the back of the car, but I kept sticking my head up trying to see what was going on. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh that's always been an important movie in my life. I, I was going to say, you know, you you tell a story like that, and I think about, um, and I remember the drive-in, the K forty two drive-in in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, parents take us to the drive-in, and I'm supposed to sleep through the last one, and I kind of do, but when I wake up on screen it's raining and some dude's face is melting and I couldn't ever figure out what that film was oh. until later in years. It's like, Oh, that's devil's rain with John Travolta. And Oh yeah. Uh, was it Ernest Borgnine? Yeah. William Shatner or something. It was, it had a Ooh, crazy cast. Back a ways. Yeah. Yeah. Saw that, saw that, that scene at a drive and went right back to sleep after that. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brad, if anybody wants to share their thoughts uh, on clues, since, since we're divided on this, how did they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com or head over to Notabomb Podcast, hit the contact us button, or there's a now a new fresh little envelope icon at the top. You can hit that and you can email us from there. Ooh, we got fancy. Troy. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm working on things. Troy. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. podcasts you should listen to. If you like our little podcasts, you should listen to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus. The VHS Files, Night of the Living Podcast, Backlook Cinema, Mixtape, uh, Raiders of the Podcast, and Movie Struck. Yeah, head over to YouTube, check out John's channel, and now for something a little bit different. Uh, Mike, man, thank you so much. We we love just spending like a, a few hours just talking films with you. I, I feel like we always learn a little something when you're on the show. Oh. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I, had I knew like we were going to have like a real live movie critic on. And so I was like, I'm going to take way better notes than like <laughs> talking about what Gerard Butler's dick looks like. in uh, of Egypt. <laughs> I tried, but this film really just didn't. You did really well, Brad. I'm, I'm it wasn't really equipped for like good note taking. Cause you're like, well, they go to this room. <laughs> now they go to this room. So, well, yeah. he's going to pick a horror film for us next time. And, 
we'll, we'll have a lot of fun with that. Yes. All right. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, afternoon, or evening. Thanks for stopping by and listening to the show. Come back next week. We're going to talk about American Assassins. More importantly, head on over to the Seat, and that's where you should be getting all your latest movie reviews. Uh, so till next week, we'll catch you later. Don't lose your head. <laughs>